This is new classical tracks from listener-supported American public media. If you're enjoying this podcast, the best thing that you can do for this show is to tell somebody else about it. Help spread the word and take a moment to rate and review us on your podcasting app. Dr. Diane Ritalik is the artistic director and conductor of the Eugene Concert Choir and Orchestra. In 2015, there was this video going around that just rocked the choral world. It featured a work by Joel Thompson. That work is Seven Last Words of the Unarmed, and it was premiered initially by Dr. Eugene Rogers and the Michigan Men's Glee Club. That's one of the reasons Diane was reaching out to Eugene. She really wanted to feature that work in concert, but she also wanted to make sure it would be an authentic experience. It took a while, but they finally connected, and Eugene recommended his professional choir, which was formed through the Sphinx organization. It's called Exigence. He'll tell you more about that, and you'll hear about this incredible journey that they went on together to put together this project. It's called Black is Beautiful, and that's what we hear about this week on New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julie Almacher. Thank you so much for joining me. Good to be it's here. a pleasure. I know the two of you came together this past year to create a, a really powerful project. It's called Black is Beautiful. And Diane, this idea, I believe, started with your vision. And it took you a little while to track down Eugene. <laughs> Tell us the story of how this all came together. Yes, well, it did take some time. It's actually, um, I was really interested in doing Joel Thompson's piece, Seven Last Words of the Unarmed, which there was a glorious video of it that Eugene Rogers did with the University of Michigan Men's Glee Club. It just kind of rocked the whole choral community. Such a moving work. And I, I really wanted to do it. I actually tried to track down Joelle Thompson, but that was rather difficult. And um, eventually I decided to try to um, find Eugene Rogers to join me in that project. And um, <laughs> it was quite a search. I actually, uh, there was a strange thing that happened where when I would try to call him at the University of Michigan, it it would ring Ronald McDonald House. Um, I don't <laughs> know why that was. And I tried every way to get in touch with him and getting through uh, colleagues and other people through Chorus America and everything. And finally, um, I get this wonderful call from Eugene saying, I, I understand you've really been trying to get a hold of me. <laughs> <laughs> so the project was um, Seven Last Words of the Unarmed, as I found later, was Joel Thompson's not really wanting to create a piece of music that he was going to publish. It was more like a musical diary to deal with his feelings, his thoughts he had about, actually, it was after the death of Eric Garner. It was in 2015 that the video came out. Um, 
The state of Oregon is a wonderful state. I, I love it. I'm originally from Illinois, from the Chicago area. But the state of Oregon does not have a great deal of diversity. And I knew if I were going to do this piece, I would need to have an authentic voice with us. I mean, the Black population in our county is only about 1%. And so I wanted to reach out to uh, a choir that would join us and fill the stage with the whole color of our humanity. And um, that's what led me to seek out Eugene and to do this piece. But when the global pandemic occurred and there was the the world just stopped and watched the horror of the murder of George Floyd. That's when I felt like I I just have to I have to do this piece just for my own expression, just to feel to grapple with my feelings about that. So that's what led me to first start this. Um, so Eugene, when you and Diane finally connected and she told you about what she wanted to do, what was your first thought? You know, I, first of all, was deeply moved um, that she had a vision of not only performing this SATB version of the seven last words, that she didn't just want to ask me to come in and conduct a clinic. But I knew that she wanted to engage and work with me on thinking through the whole experience and having singers of, of, of color join, in addition to featuring a powerful work that both of us loved uh, by Undine Smith Moore, Scenes from a Life of a Martyr, which both of us knew there was, we both commented on that call. There's no recordings of this work, it's hard to get the score. And so I was in right away. And I knew that um, because it wasn't just a performative, she wanted us to come in, spend a week with the community, do master classes, have discussions, panel panels about the work. That to me is where really, to me, the um, growth happens. And so it was a very easy, <laughs> easy convincing um, conversation. I was really in right away because I believed uh, we both believed in the same things, and we both wanted to champion both of these works uh, and the composers. So it, it was an easy sell for me. His mother him gently and slow. His mother him gently and slow. And every time... Yes, well, the scenes from The Life of a Martyr... Uh, that was another large aspect of the project that I had done over the pandemic. I had done this whole two-hour-long video called In Celebration of Women, which uh, traces women composers from the 12th century to the present. And in researching all of that, I just found there were so many female composers that I had never even heard of in spite of over 40 years of being in the business and my doctorate degree, you know, higher studies and everything. And especially Black female composers had been marginalized. And so I learned about Undine Smith Moore's Scenes from the Life of a Martyr, Oratorio and the Life of Martin Luther King Jr. that was actually performed in Carnegie Hall in 1982 and pretty much has languished since then. As Eugene says, it, you know, score was in manuscript. It was difficult to even 
find it to be available. And so I actually had called Eugene just knowing of the um, University of Michigan Men's Glee Club and his performance and thinking that he would come with them. But then he told me about Exigence, his professional choir of the Sphinx organization. And we just hit it off immediately. The rapport was instantaneous. We were both just so excited talking about all the possibilities. And when I realized that they could do both, Seven Last Words of the Unarmed and Scenes from the Life of a Martyr, and actually we could feature them and more works as well. It was um, it was very exciting. And I felt like, oh, Eugene can fulfill all of my visions. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I have so many, um, so many questions, and I have lots of things I want to ask you about all of the things you just said, Diane. I'm going to backtrack just a little bit, and I want to talk to Eugene, Eugene about the University of Michigan Men's Glee Club and the premiere that they did of Joel Thompson's work, The Last Words of the Unarmed, mm -hmm. because as Diane mentioned, he didn't write this work with the intention of it being performed. What happened that he finally allowed that to be performed? You know, it, first of all, I was um, completely humbled by the fact that Joel would trust me and my students with basically what was his musical diary. Joel put it down, and um, after he composed the work, it was cathartic for him, but he began to, on Facebook, put a call out for singers and instrumentalists who wanted to read through the project. At that time, he was in Georgia, and they read through excerpts of the project, not for performance, but just so he could actually hear it in reality besides his MIDI. And it was at that time that someone um, reached out to him and said, I think you should share this with Eugene Rogers. Joel sent me an email introducing himself. A friend of our mutual friend introduced us to each other, and he sent me the composition. And I sat on it, to be honest, for a while, because for me, I believed I loved the piece, but I couldn't think about how am I going to bring this to a predominantly non-African-American group of college guys and not be political or not have them think I'm anti-police or I'm anti um, other thoughts about many different opinions. And once the idea of love, life, and loss uh, came through as a theme, and I began to think about ways to present many different types of thoughts about loss, I knew we had an avenue in because um, the loss of life, regardless at that time of one's humanity, of one's background or political persuasion, the loss of humanity, the loss of life is worth acknowledging and singing about. And that's when I got the buy-in from those students because they knew it wasn't agenda-driven. It was about us having conversations and thinking about their lives. Um, and and it, from there, the really the rest is history because we had no agenda for anything but to perform the work, have conversation, and be done. But that's when you realize something is greater than you. And Joel and I both realized this is bigger than all of us because we didn't realize that it would connect to so many people from so many walks of life. And then later on, fast forward, the full orchestra version, which was commissioned by Sphinx organization for their 20th anniversary, the Men's Glee Club performed that. And then several years later, Joel then 
um, adapted it for SATB voices for exigence. And that's why I recommended exigence to Diane, because with her having an SATB choir, if she wanted not just her tenors and basses to sing, there was an SATB version, which we could all do together. And Joel gave uh, the blessing for us to do the SATB version with uh, the Eugene Concert Choir. And if I'm not mistaken, he's also performed this work with that choir. Yes, Joel is a, a, mem- a founding member of Exigence Ensemble as well. And that's what I said is you not only get Joel uh, the piece, but you'll also get Joel as a part of the whole project because he sings in the group. Tell me how this group came to be, Exigence. You know, Exigence um, is inspired by the mission of Sphinx to celebrate diversity in the arts. And as I finished my um, doctorate and began to work in the field and admiring so many professional choral ensembles, I still didn't like professional orchestras. I still didn't see a lot of people who looked like me who were brown and black singers in these professional ensembles. I saw a lot of college choirs with diversity, church choirs, community choirs. And I went to the Sphinx organization and said, would you write me a letter of support to start a group that would also do what the orchestra you're doing on the orchestra side of things? And they said, we'll do more than that. Let's partner together to have the vocal in of the Sphinx Symphony Orchestra and Sphinx Virtuosi to champion more uh, Black and Latinx classical artists in the professional realm. And thus, Exigence was born in 2018. How was the preparation for this Black is Beautiful performance put together? Because I, I, I know that it isn't, it isn't like you read the notes on the page and you just go for it. Can you talk a little bit about how you prepared the performers for this project, for this piece in particular, but then also for the other works on the program. Um, I'm going to let Diane start with the Eugene Concert Choir, and then we'll tag team. So, Diane, I don't know if you want to speak about from the Eugene Concert Choir preparation. Uh, yes, well, the Eugene Concert Choir, we we just thoroughly embraced this piece. The, this is a 100-voice uh, Masterworks Chorus community group. That is a civic choir, a resident company of the Holt Center for the Performing Arts in Eugene. And we um, typically do choral masterworks and other large works. And the Eugene Concert Choir just totally embraced this music. Um, this is one thing at, that, you know, Eugene mentioned about Joel trusting um, exigence or trusting him and the University of Michigan Lehman to express this very personal piece of his. And we worked with the Eugene Concert Choir, really paying attention to noticing and reading about the individual men that the music is about. It was very personal and very heart-wrenching you know, there were certainly tears along the way when we would be rehearsing. But we wanted to make sure that we knew each of the people that we were shining a light on. You know, that this was not just going to be a, a lament, but that we were going to raise up those beautiful lives that we lost. I wanted to call this concert Black is Beautiful because to me it was beautiful music by Black composers about beautiful Black lives, and each of them mattered very much to us. And um, uh, Eugene will tell you that to in order to really do justice to this work, you need to have it memorized. You can't be looking at a score 
and try to express this work. And so the entire Eugene Concert Choir with members of Eugene Vocal Arts joining them worked on it very hard and memorized the piece so that they could just directly uh, communicate with Eugene with exigence when they came to join us and, you know, meld together as a group and express the music directly from their hearts. You know, for me, it's interesting because when I, the preparation of the Michigan Men's Glee Club was drastically different uh, emotionally than the preparation for with exigence. I do find the preparation with the Michigan Men's Glee Club was very similar to what Diane did with the Eugene Concert Choir. And because she had done that work, by the time Exigence joined them, there was a lot of that work that I didn't have to do. I could focus then on the artistic side of things. We also didn't have a lot of time. But my work with Exigence, it's interesting, there was not a lot of need for me to go through the stories. Everyone in that group knew all of those individuals. They knew the stories. The hardest part for them was not um, getting overly emotional during the process. There were moments where I have, I've had singers get so emotional they couldn't finish the piece. And so that training for us was more pacing ourselves emotionally so that we could actually communicate those words and the music and not allow our own personal trauma or experience or, or knowledge get in the way of us communicating the art. And so it's interesting to see the difference in that. But, you know, it's 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 a little different when you're all together. I have mothers in exigence. They're thinking about their Black sons, that they are, many of them are young, that they're sending off to school and will they come home. It just resonates very differently, right, when you're from the community. And so and because of that, because the exigence, when they premiered it, it was just them. So you have to understand that's very personal. It was actually not easy for them, to be honest, to join with the Eugene Concert Choir, such a large group where they had experienced it in such a personal way. Now we're going to have a larger community expression of this. And that also was another level of adjustment for them. But because the Eugene Concert Choir really showed us that they had done the work they were in they were committed to the the stories the peace the unity began to come together it was really a beautiful experience <laughs> the the whole week of exigence coming to join us and as eugene said that we had them do um voice master classes and eugene did choral workshops in the university and the schools we did a community forum panel discussion we you know we brought the community in as best we could but um the eugene concert choir and exigence just embracing each other in this project it was really a beautiful thing and one of the things that i noticed in that community forum is you had a student who joined you and she, if I'm not mistaken, specifically joined the Eugene Choir so she could sing this piece. And somebody had recruited her, like she was standing in line to get coffee or something. Is that right? And they <laughs> that's were like, right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Can you talk just a little bit about that, Diane? Yes, that's Kajanda Love. And I am happy to say that Kajanda is still singing with us. 
Um, she's continued on as a regular choir member. Uh, she was so inspired by the project that she actually became quite a spokesperson for the importance of the Black is Beautiful project. She was featured in a in a video that the Halt Center put together and also joined us for the community forum and really spoke eloquently about what this meant to her personally and how important it was to express these words. And she herself is a young mother, too. I think I remember her saying. Yes. Yes, she is. Mm -hmm. So when you referred to that, Eugene, she came to mind immediately. I know that for a lot of these singers, um, this is a life-changing experience to perform that work. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that, Eugene, what you've heard from some of the singers who have... Mm -hmm. Over the years, I've been very fortunate to have experienced this piece with people of many different ages now and many different backgrounds. And, I, you know, just a, just speaking about a few of the stories that have come to me, I'll never forget a young man who performed the premiere in 2015. And then we were featured in a documentary with the Yamaha Entertainment Group about this work. And he was interviewed. And he said to me during that time, and that was about seven years later, and he said to me, when I first sang this piece, it was awareness. And I really began to just become aware. He says, I was so sheltered. I really didn't, even though I should have, I didn't know about any of this. And now as an older adult and a citizen, I want to do more to, to prevent this from ever happening again. It has gone from awareness to action. And I, for me, I, that, that story, I, I mean, I burst into tears because, you know, gosh, not, you know, not all cool music has that intention, but my goodness, when you, when someone says that from their experiencing a piece to living with it, how first it's awareness and now I want to create change for a better world, not just talk about it. That that's, wow, that's, that's for me, that's, that's pretty important. And so that's, those are some of the stories that, that I've heard in terms of life change that's happening. And I there are numbers of others. I, I've, I've heard some say, you know, we get so much talking and commentary, but rarely do we have some, a musical commentary where it allows you to just receive and listen. And, she, I, you know, I've heard people say it's made me allow myself to listen in a way that I wouldn't listen if it was coming just from commentary or news. But the music allowed me to stop and listen. You know, that's however it raises awareness and as far as I'm concerned, that's that's hopefully what we're all about. Um, not just making people comfortable or singing pretty songs, but sometimes we have to raise awareness through discomfort. Sometimes making folks uncomfortable by talking about tough issues. If that creates change or allows people to listen and think differently, as far as I'm concerned, then the arts are doing their job. This work takes its inspiration from Haydn's Seven Last Words of Christ. 
Can you talk a little bit about that and the parallels maybe that we're seeing or hearing in this work compared to that? Sure. Joel, thinking about those seven last words, Joel used that as a framework to to decide which last words he would actually use in this work. As we know, Seth, there are more than seven lives who've been affected by this. One of the ones that come to me, a woman behold thy son. For example, when those words are said, Joel uses, um, mom, I'm going to college. This very much relationship about a mother and a son. I'm expecting as a listener to hear anger, and we do hear some anger, and then we hear also so much tenderness. I'm thinking of that mom I'm going to college, where we hear the story of this young man who did everything right, came to this country, and was profiled and became a statistic. I mean, he was getting ready to go to college. This is a voicemail. He left his mom. I mean, that's unbelievably heartbreaking and the piece itself is is so beautiful you can't help but be moved by that absolutely Amadou Diallo his mother Katadou Diallo who we had the pleasure of meeting she came to the premiere of the documentary and I want to just quote her right now because her words she said there's been a lot of talk about her son and people writing other songs but she says for her the reason why this stands out as one of the the leading representation is because she thinks of classical music as being a heightened awareness or a heightened um, art form, if you will. That's how some view it. And for her to have her son encapsulated and his words presented in a way that that that's respected and elevated, that's who that's where he was headed. He was headed to do better. He was headed to college. She says, I can't think of any better treatment. Joel sets it in a very tender way. We think of it almost being in 4-4, which is a standard time signature, but he uses 5-4 that always creates a sense of uneasiness. You never can settle, which is because we know even though we're singing these words, he was very excited when he sent her that voicemail. So the work has got, it's filled with tenderness and joy there's the uneasiness because we know how it ends. And that's an example of, of many, one of many, where Joel, um, I think, is so thoughtful and making sure the compositional technique used highlights the words, yet presents it in a way that, that really, if you listen, challenges you as a listener. When we think about the last words of Into Thee, I commend my spirit, Joel uses, I can't breathe. breathe. So the text structure of the seven last words 
is how he then decides which last words of the victims when they should happen in that order. That to me in tandem with how he then musically sets those words compositionally in seven different ways with the kernel of the Lomarme theme, which is the armed man is to be feared, this old medieval Renaissance tune that that those of us who are studied musicology know very early as we think about Renaissance music and all the masses, to take that same repertoire, that title then to use it in this way to raise awareness, to use that as a musical kernel throughout this work. And it's in every movement, in addition to every word having its own compositional gesture, um, I think are just a few um, points that highlight the brilliance of the short work. The work was completed in 2016, well before George Floyd was murdered. And yet, of course, it very poignantly ends with that movement, I Can't Breathe. I mean, it's prophetic, really, sadly. And I'm wondering, how has the death of George Floyd impacted the meaning of this work as you are now performing it after it just keeps keeps going in, in not the right direction? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you know, we finished our work with this piece really in 2016, 2017. And um, we we created a website because we wanted, if individuals found the work, we wanted them to have some framing, some commentary around it. And as far as I was concerned, I had said all that I needed to say. Joel had said all he needed to say. His career was taking off at Yale and now the Houston Grand Opera, writing other works. And so 2020, the death of George Floyd, we saw people discovering the work as if it hadn't existed already. As far as we were concerned, that was a lifetime ago. And we were saddened, yet we were, you know, it's one of those paradoxes, right? You're sad that you're back to this again, but you're honored that people are hearing, finally hearing the message and the music that maybe they didn't hear before. CNN, New York Times, so many reached out to us, interviewed us about the work. Um, I, I guess I'm just honored that people now aren't afraid to say that this is really an issue that we need to continue to be talking about. We saw people come out, the nation, the world come out post George Floyd's death in a way that they hadn't when Michael Brown died or when Trayvon Martin died. Yes, people were aware, but I think watching when we were all sitting at home, trapped in our homes because of the coronavirus, watching that death, I think many people, the re, they, many people, the reality of it, of humanity, this is a human being, regardless of one's political persuasion or background, we all, the only way this is going to stop is if we all come together and take a stand. And that's why Glory is set the way it's set on this recording, those words, the rap. This is not a problem for one group or one party. Each person must strive to end what was started. MLK had a dream of a table where we'd all sit. And moving toward this dream, we cannot quit. Each man and woman deserve their justice. You can't believe that it's just us. Because it's trying to call people to action to say that it's not, this is not one community or one person's problem. This is our problem as, as Americans, as, as, as humanitarians, that we need to come together and fight against.
to Scenes from the Life of a Martyr by Undine Smith-Moore. Did I hear both of you say that this has never been recorded before? Is this the first recording? This is the first commercially available recording of this grand oratorio. What is precious is never to forget the names of those who in their lives fought for life who wore at their hearts the fire's center. Born of the sun, they traveled a short while toward the sun and left the vivid air signed with their honor. You have a very um, powerful narrator who is part of this project. Tell me a little bit about Marcus Jarrell Ruff. Well, one thing that was wonderful about this project that made it so complete is that we got to work with the Sphinx organization. And um, Andre Dowell, who is the, the administrator for the Sphinx organization, and and Eugene, um, I just trusted them to choose these marvelous soloists and the narrator. And Marcus, his performance, I mean, the, the narrator also performs as a bass uh, in a couple of movements, but that tremendous oratorical style of his voice was beautiful and and encapsulated all of the different nuances of this narration. I mean, this Scenes from the Life of a Martyr, it goes through all of the life of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. from birth to cradle, and then there's the joyful, playful time as a child, I have forgotten much, but still remember the poinsettias red, blood red, and warm December. What weeks, what months, what wild time of the mild year. There's the time that he, he, uh, he meets Coretta. And with his beloved, he lived the young man's fancy. The time of the singing of birds is come. The flowers appear on the earth. The voice of the turtle is heard in the land. There's the love story. There is the um, call to preach and accepting what he came to realize was really a, a very difficult thing with so many people that were coming out to, as it said, oh God, how many of them that hate me. And yet accepting that mission and continuing on and the poem about the morning time, and so on. Know that love has chosen you to live his crucial purposes. Know that love has chosen you. Um, it It was really inspiring to hear Marcus take the characters of each of these narrations and weave it into the story that so beautifully encapsulated the lie. Could each of you highlight for me, and I know this will be hard because it's a it's a pretty big work, could you highlight a section that 
every time you hear it, it just is so powerful for you. I, I think for me, one of my favorite parts is Martin's song. Because Martin's song is where he you hear him accept what he knows is um, his destiny, the challenge of knowing that he's, he won't please everyone, that he's going to have enemies. But I'm, ex- I'm, I'm accepting this calling on my life to basically sacrifice my life. That is deeply moving, and the way our soloist, Demetrius Sampson, performs this. I've had the wonderful privilege of knowing him since he was a high school student. He was in the Georgia All-State Choir that I conducted many, many years ago. He's also a member of Exigence. He sings this piece. He's also born and raised in Atlanta, so his connection to Martin Luther King. And I have to tell you, he you can feel when he sings that, that he has personalized that Martin's aria and his acceptance and the way Undine sets that where he ends, oh, 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 my God, and it rises up and ends on a high A, full voice, full orchestra. It is, it's it's like his voice is him giving up his own himself to God, up to heaven. It is a powerful moment, and he delivers. I will second that because as, as the conductor of the work, I was standing right next to Demetrius's incredibly powerful voice, and it was a thrill every time to hear yes. him. And that, that finale portion, that is, that is amazing. I would like to mention one other part. The transition from um, They Tell Me Martin is Dead and then going into tell all my father's people, don't you grieve for me? They tell me that Martin is dead is is shocking. They tell me Martin is dead. The choir is shouting, it's wailing, it's screaming, it's, everyone is in, in shock. You know, just a, a tremendous outpouring of emotion. There were times The bells rang at the funeral of Martin Luther King Jr. And the score just calls for chimes, ad lib. And it was my editorial decision to go ahead and let that 
chime go 39 times. The bells were rung 39 times, one for each year of Martin Luther King Jr.'s life. So that performance just kind of hovers there with the drum cadence underneath as the chimes ring 39 times to commemorate that moment. It was a moment that was also very powerful and and definitely not done often that way. I don't know, it just brought it home a bit more, you know, that he was gone. So the dramatic effect from that and to tell all of my father's people, don't grieve for me, it just made it that more poignant. The opening part of Tell All My Father's People with this whoa, where they are just grieving and wailing. And yet, it goes on to be like a simple hymn and to say, don't you grieve for me. Alleluia, amen. Um, It's very uplifting and uh, just spectacular at the end. So, you know, very tragic, but it doesn't leave you just, ah, this is done. This is, this is, you know, lament only. This was a man who spoke and his words have continued. Who knows if Undine Moore in 1981 would have known how how long and how much his words would reverberate. So his work continues on, and I think that's what the ending of the whole oratorio is is saying to us. It's continuing on. Don't you grieve for me. Let us, as Eugene would say, let's have a call to action. called Black is Beautiful, with Eugene Rogers and the choir Exigence, and Diane Ritalik, she was leading the Eugene Concert Choir and Orchestra. Thanks to Valerie Kaler. She's our producer for new classical tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Locker. Julia Locker.